Ashley Brown here. Welcome back to the AGM Files here on Hawks Insiders. Our guest today is Anne-Marie Pulitzer, who is a member of the Hawthorne Board, standing for re-election at uh, the election now actually underway. So we're not going to muck around too much. Before we introduce her, we'll say hello to Darren Levine. Daz, hello. Hi, Ash. Um, yeah, I was just really looking forward to talking to Anne-Marie. Um, she's been involved with the club through things like Operation Payback and um, just very keen to hear her thoughts on that, on what's currently going on in the in the lead up to the AGM. And uh, Danny Printolo. Ash, good to be here for um, our last instalment of the AGM files and really excited to finish uh, with a bang with Emery today. So yeah, let's get into it. Not quite okay. last. We'll get Richie Vandenberg coming up in the middle of the week as well, but up for re-election, but uh, keen to have a chat as well. So we look forward to that, but that might be a, a bit of a broader conversation. Anne-Marie, welcome to Hawks Insiders. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Good to have you here. We start off all these conversations with almost your Hawthorne backstory, how you came to be a Hawthorne supporter, you, uh, where you used to sit and watch games, who was on the back of your duffel coat all that sort of stuff. So establish, I mean, they're, 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 you've got great people who supporting you, uh, great Hawthorne people who are urging people to vote for you. So we won't doubt your credentials, but like to hear your Hawthorne backstory. Oh, yes. Well, no, I am lucky to have a lot of um, Hawthorne uh, greats that, have, uh, that are supporting me now. But I mean, I think that probably goes back to having had such a long association with the club. I've got 36 years stamped on my scarf. Um, and that goes back to when uh, I got my first paycheck because prior to that, uh, when you're a student, you just couldn't afford this sort of thing. But my, my actual Hawthorne story starts when I was about five and uh, I was sat on one knee by, um, I sat on one knee of Peter Hudson and my brother sat on the other and we were told, you two have to barrack for Hawthorne. And I thought, well, that's, that's okay, I'll do that. So I told mum, she thought, well, it'll be someone else next week and it never was. So Peter Hudson was um, the first and then... Um, after Peter retired, uh, the Rat and Dermy, um, and then uh, following that, of course, Hodgie, and more recently, uh, uh, Jager O'Meara. So, well, but uh, a, a very, uh, very accomplished uh, group of uh, players and what have you that uh, you followed. Um, so, we talked briefly. Before, we talked. We had a test message exchange or phone call before we, as we set this up. My, I met you back in, I reckon it was 1997. I was writing for The Age. Yes. And I was, I did a feature on Ian Dicker because the stories were coming through. He was his first year as president of the football club post the merger, yes. the failed merger. And he was working ridiculously long hours and going to all sorts of, um, all, all sorts of events and, and talking to all sorts of people to try and help the club get better. And, I was walked with him, met him in St Kilda Road, and he said, come up for an appointment. We're going to the Alfred Hospital to meet Anne-Marie Pulitzer, who you were a doctor at the mm -hmm. Alfred at the time, but you were doing some sort of data mapping of the membership. So this is of the membership base and sort of working out where everyone lives. So this is this is analytics before, two decades before analytics yes. became a thing. So I want to know how how you got that interest in, and was that sort of, your, is that how you decided to sort of help out the club? You know, and it all hands on deck post the, post-Operation Payback, is this how you chose to help the club? Well, I mean, I was very much involved with Operation Payback at the time with um, Don and with Ian. So I'd actually met Ian before, um, well before that. Um, and then from um, Operation Payback, when we were successful in, um, in defending the club, uh, we had to 
worked very, very hard on a volunteer basis. Um, and, and I was one of the leaders of the membership committee. Now at that time, um, the, the membership department was one person part-time. And so there was there's a, a, there's a lot of work to be done to get to where we are today. So on the membership committee, um, they uh, asked people who'd been active in Operation Payback to, to join the committee. And we had a knowledge that there was a lot of Hawthorne supporters out there that were not Hawthorne members. And that was where, um, I mean, I was certainly not trained in data analytics, but uh, you know, I, I had a research background and that's how I got on board with, um, it was really quite clear when you looked at where the, um, when you overlaid the map of Melbourne, that we were really quite strong in that Southeast wedge. And that's, that's where, that was when that work was being done when I met you there. Has there been a bit of a shift in, in recent years, you across the, the latest in analytics? Sorry, for me personally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious if there's been, um, obviously there's there's probably been a big shift in the, that kind of like southeast catchment, but are you across mm -hmm. any new analytics there? Well, no, that's no longer my portfolio. I'm now... Um, medical and Hawthorne um, history, tradition and welfare of past players. So I'd, no, I'd leave that to people who were actually trained in the area. Um, <laughs> There's no doubt a step up for everybody. Sure. I'm just going back to Operation Payback, obviously, you know, the club's very existence was at stake back then. Um, this upcoming AGM, obviously, the club is in a good position and, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not fighting for the future, but how important is it, do you think, in the context of the, the club's recent history anyway? I think the stability at the moment is of utmost importance, um, if that's the question. Um, the, there are people standing for election who are very, very good Hawthorne people. Um, but at the moment, the club's um, got some major projects underway. We've, we've had our first year of the AFLW. We're, we're poised to undertake the most ambitious project in the um, Kennedy Centre that not only our club's ever undertaken, but any club's ever undertaken. And uh, unless there is a very good reason for change, which um, I actually can't see and the rest of the board can't see, we've made some significant changes from last year. And change for change's sake is, we are all very concerned, not only at the way that the, the, the club's um, tearing each other apart at the moment for, um, it, it is difficult to see what's to be gained out of it, because we really think the club's on a good path and we would like to continue with that. And, and disruption at a board level um, at this point is, um, is actually a very, very risky business. So you're, you're, it's your belief that really a change will upend a lot of the projects that are on, on the table at the moment? Well, it has to. If you're going to have a handover of a significant number of board members, then uh, who, many of whom have got intimate knowledge of, of the project, um, it is that it is going to um, cause a pause in the in the uh, movement forward and a project of I mean and this is a project of you know tens of millions of dollars so you actually put a pause on that and you and you cost significant amounts of money and opportunity and so you have to have a very good reason for wanting to do that um, where yeah I mean obviously the the Hawks for change that they name themselves Hawks for change. Um, there was, uh, there's been a couple of very significant changes that have been made by the current board since concerns were raised last year. Um, in particular, um, we've, we've got um, um, Jeff's um, stepped aside a year early, which was a significant concern of many of, um, of the people with Hawks for Change. And we've um, made a, a sale of our gaming venues, which ironically, when that was being actually um, 
requested last year was actually underway, but for commercial considerations, we were unable to really say that um, publicly. And we were, you know, there was a little virus going around at the time, which was um, causing um, disruption to the financial sector. And we did not want to sell the gaming venues uh, as a fire sale. And by actually sitting back, we, we sold it at actual peak and, and, you know, made a significant amount more money than would have been done had it been sold last year. Absolutely. I think the timing of that sale um, definitely helps the cause for, um, you know, the revenue coming in. Abs absolutely. Now, um, I think one of the most famous membership slogans ever created was one that I believe you uh, were the, the author of. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Proud, Passionate and Paid Up and how that came about and, um, and I guess how that sort of shaped a whole membership campaign for a, for a lot, of, lot of years. Well, the membership committee that I spoke of, um, the word got out, we need a slogan for our campaign. So we were all set the task of going away and working on slogans, which I, I did myself and, and my partner at the time, and I came up with 20 different slogans, but clearly this one was the one that I favoured overall. Um, I, when I, I thought of it, I thought, you know, this, this is the one. And so I sneakily kind of put it to the top of my list of about 20 slogans, but um, nobody actually there was really very little discussion as soon as people read that because it actually encapsulated everything that we were all about, that we, that, that, we, that we were very, very proud of who we were. We were desperately passionate. It wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had the success in Operation Payback if it hadn't been for the passion. And, but, but we also needed people to put their hands in their pocket and to convert to financial membership because that was the only way that the, the club was going to have sustained, sustained successful independence. And, and we've achieved that. And I'm really, really proud of um, the contribution that I may have made to that, and particularly that slogan. We've talked to you about, a bit about, we actually all want to talk to you a bit about sort of how the board operates. And it's, it's from a high level of like, how often does the board meet? And then when you drill down your responsibilities, so you've outlined that you're involved in, say, the medical side of things. So where does your involvement start and end compared to the medical staff who, you know, the, the doctors and the high performance staff at the club who also have a medical brief. How, can you explain how that works? Well, I'm not hands-on medical. I don't treat any of the well, patients, players. Um, but uh, I mean, there, if I could give an example, say of the recent COVID situation, you know, I mean, I was able to, um, to, to be a leader on that committee because of my medical background um, to, I mean, Liam West does a fantastic job and, and certainly doesn't need my help in, in treating or managing the patients. Um, but there, there needs to be um, an overall um, watch on all of the people in the club, the, the staff members, in particular, the past players. I mean, these past players, they're the lifeblood of our club. And many of the older players um, are now, you know, suffering, um, medical illnesses um, and, and surgical illnesses, if you like, you know, with the banged up bodies. And, and they need somebody who, can, who they can actually um, run concerns past if they want to. I mean, I'm always there for them. I don't, obviously, with the number of past players we've got, I don't individually treat all of them, but I've significantly um, individually treated some of them. Um, I mean, Russell Green spoke in the paper of uh, he had a bit of concern about his heart. And um, even though Russell's very fit, we did the needful and he ended up with open heart surgery. And, and Russell would be the sort of person that would, you know, such a fit guy, everyone says, and then he drops dead in the gym. So they're the sort of things that I'm able to do from a medical point of view. 
Um, and also, um, when there are medical concerns about the players, you know, um, they are sometimes brought to board level and I'm able to offer a, a consultative opinion rather than, than a hands-on. Um, but as you mentioned, it is a, a portfolio-driven board. And um, I'm lucky with my Hawthorne background, just having been around for so long and being involved in so many different coterie groups and really just having a, a very good knowledge of the club, as well as being able to provide the medical input, it, it's, it's really quite a unique skill set, if I say so myself. And, and so if that, that's what um, I think it's very important that we don't lose sight of um, with the way the board's managed. Everybody's got their own areas of expertise and you don't want to have you know, you don't need three or four people doing having the same skill set. It needs to. Um, well, everyone's got their portfolios, and that's how and that's how the boards run very efficiently. I think transparency um, has been a, a big thing that's been talked about um, in this during the selection process. Um, I would just love to hear some insight into, I guess, how often you all meet up as uh, as board members. Um, the the, the steps that are involved in signing off big decisions, how, how does it all work? Can you give us a bit of an insight into what it means to be a Hawthorne board member? Sure. I mean, transparency is a difficult one because, you know, there are things with, um, you know, commercial implications that you really can't be transparent about until, if you like, the deal's done. Um, and even then there are some things that need to remain confidential, usually for the protection of certain people involved. But in answer to your question, we, we meet formally monthly. Um, well, my experience um, is a little bit different from others. So I actually joined the board just prior to COVID. So um, most of my early meetings were online. Um, and I think what happened with the advent of Zoom, the, um, the idea of a snap board meeting became much more usual. Um, so we would now, when there are incidents, um, and you know, there's been a few in the last, um, particularly in the last 18 months or so, where we need to get the board together quickly, we can do that with a few hours notice on Zoom. So I would say um, roughly um, we would meet a couple of times out, uh, well, because these things happen sort of, you know, ad hoc, if you like, if there's something going on that's important, we might meet two or three times a week by Zoom. Um, on average, I'd say that in between the formal board meetings, which run for about three or four hours, um, and are held in person now, um, and as much as we can, we've been doing that, uh, then we would meet a, perhaps a couple of times by Zoom, uh, which prior to COVID was probably done by phone hookup, but I, I wasn't on the board at that stage. And are there little sort of breakaway groups as well that you, you sort of form outside of the, the full board? Well, there are, there are subcommittees. Um, mm. And I mean, it's pretty obvious what, what, that mine's um, awards um, past players tradition. So I, I'm on the um, I'm an observer on the past players committee, which I attend two or three times a year. I'm formerly on the past players and welfare committee and um, the awards committee. And everybody and um, everybody else is on uh, chairs at least one committee and is on a, a second committee as a second board member. So that's where the sort of the, the grunt work, if you like, for the board gets done. And then when we report back at actual board meetings, those subcommittee chairs will report what's happening. Uh, there'll be a written report if it's appropriate and it's spoken to at the board meeting. Has there been, I mean, this election's brought out some fairly sharp points of view from past players on both sides, supporting the club and supporting uh, the, the other candidates. Is the past playing cohort of the club as divided as it's ever been? 
Uh, well, that's hard for me to say. I, I guess because um, I'm really only in touch with the, the past players that are significantly supportive of me. I mean, Russell Green um, put out the word um, when I was standing that he wanted people to put their names down. And within um, a couple of hours, he had 30 past players who'd all um, responded to say that they were happy to go public in their support of me because they either knew personally what I'd um, done for them or for um, people that they'd spoken to. So I was very grateful and am very grateful for the, the support of high profile um, past players and also some of the lesser profile players that um, are very happy to help um, because they see that it's an important role to retain um, someone who's got a medical background um, as well as a past player brief. Um, in terms of the division with the past players, it is, it's very, very hard to watch and to hear. Um, particularly, I think uh, a lot of the ones that I've heard over the weekend are not players. They're, they've mainly been the ones who are not supportive of the current board and unfortunately don't seem to be very well informed about the actual facts of the matter. I can understand why, because, you know, if you haven't been around the club for a long time, um, it is very hard to know the specifics of, of the uh, issues. But from a board point of view, it is very difficult to see past players making big statements um, when, you un when you know yourself that these things are factually incorrect, that they could actually ring one of us and talk to us, we'd be very happy to do that. Um, but instead, we do get a lot of um, very public um, sweeping statements and not particularly from people who have been close to the club in the last 10 to 20 years. I guess though, when one of those people is someone who's so highly regarded as Chris Langford, that it is that is jarring for supporters. It's very jarring for the board. Very jarring. Um, I can only only imagine that, um, that 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 Chris was not well briefed on it, um, or otherwise, I think he would have been more considered in some of the things that he said. Um, because I, I know you're particularly talking about um, the Indigenous report, um, which um, I'm happy to address. Um, specifically, we don't need to speak in generalities. Um, I mean, his criticism of the process is curious because the our, our brief in the first place was to look back and to see whether there was any problems at all because we didn't we were not aware of any problems. But if there were problems, we wanted to know about it. It's a curious thing that that um, that. One of, the, one of the other candidates, in fact, was the football director at the time. Um, we, the current board, other than um, one member who was there for um, a year or so, and was certainly not the football director, um, we were not the ones that were there at the time. Um, and uh, so we, we seem to be held up as the messengers that are being shot when we are actually really just, we were looking to see whether we, our opinion that things were uh, had gone well was true. Now we were absolutely shattered when we read the report. We were we were obviously surprised, shocked. It was very very difficult reading. Um, and uh, then once we got that, the, it's very important to understand that this was not meant to be an investigation. It was never meant to be an investigation because we don't have the capacity to do that. We were looking to see if there were any issues. Once we identified the issues. It was clear that it needed to go to AFL integrity. It was not. It was. It was nothing that we could handle at a um, club level. It was far too important, um, and so then it was. It was handed within days to AFL integrity. 
Now, I would have hoped that, that Chris Langford and others would understand that this report was a confidential report. And it, was, it, is, it is not actually ethical um, to discuss a confidential report until there's been an appropriate investigation and there are findings. So to say that the club made no statement is, is not actually true. I mean, we were quite public about how, how shattered we were about what we found, what was reported in the report. It's important to understand and to remember that these allegations are allegations at this stage. So there are other Hawthorne people, the accused, if you like, who have not had their chance to actually speak at all. Um, and there's been no findings at this stage. Um, however, what we do have is a group of important Hawthorne people, the, the First Nations people who are hurting. And we respected their um, request to remain anonymous to the club, to not be identified. So through third parties, we have offered some help to them as much as like a small amount of financial assistance um, to help within the early stages of what they were going through. But beyond that, we we're a bit limited in what we could do. Um, but it is, it is not true that, um, that, that we've kind of abdicated responsibility. We have passed it on to the appropriate channels. I've got a question about the report. I I'll get a satisfactory answer out of anybody is clearly allegations were made against some very senior and important people, part of the fabric of the football club. Why wasn't a, a, a red flag raised either as Philip Egan was doing the report or when the first report was handed back to the football club and you received it, why was it, why wasn't the sort of the fairness of, I know, I know there was a brief for Phil Vegan, but why didn't someone say, hang on a sec, some serious allegations have been made here against some Hawthorne people. This report can't be final until they've had their say and, and then we'll give it to the AFL. Why didn't you sort of, why wasn't the brief changed? Because obviously he was hearing some pretty troubling allegations about great Hawthorne people. Why didn't Philip Egan or the club say, hang on a sec, the report, the brief has to change and you have to speak to these people before the report is final? But then hang on. We couldn't actually speak to them. They're not our employees. Um, they were at the time, but not at the time of the report. But you could and reach out. You could have reached out to them and said, hey, there's some things being said. We're doing this report. And in fairness to you, because you're standing within the football club, we'd like to raise this with you and, and get your version of events in this report we are conducting. Well, because we were not going to do the investigation. So the the it was a matter of a couple of days. It was like... We got the final report. We had notified the AFL that it was on the way there. And so then it was sent to them for them to set up. And in fact, if, if you think about it, the AFL themselves did not feel that they had the capacity to conduct an investigation and have set up an external group of people. So that once you start to talk to people um, and, and get other sides and things, and sort of, if you like, set up your own little court, you compromise further investigation. It, it's a very tricky legal area once you start to get into that. So you, you, if, you, um, if you actually speak to people and, and, and if you like contaminate the investigation, you can cause further problems. And that's why it went straight to AFL Integrity. It was, it was to be confidential. It was treated highly confidential at a club level. In fact, once the report was read, um, we were in Jeff, Jeff's office 
the written reports were read and they were then shredded. So I've only read it once because it was then shredded, because, it was, because we totally recognised the damage that would be done should the names of the accused, if you like, um, you know, and we know, all know who they are, um, should they have become public. And, and as we've seen, that there's been a significant amount of damage done. It was, it was from our point of view, treated confidential, um, but others, as is their right, decided not to treat it that way because they didn't. They, the, the report was not there, so they were not obliged legally to make keep it confidential, and they chose not to. Emery, is it fair to say that the club and and as a as a result of that, the board were was blindsided by the media leaks, uh, and obviously, you know, would have preferred not to have that not to have occurred. Of course, we would have preferred it not to have occurred. In actual fact, for everybody's benefit, the, we're well aware of the opinion of some of the First Nations people that we were just trying to protect the club. We were not just trying to protect the club. We were trying to protect very, very important former servants of the club who we knew would suffer reputational damage. We were also, in fact, trying... Maybe we were wrong, but we didn't think that the... Um, the First Nations people were best served by this being played out in the media either. But, but that, is, that is their decision, that was their right. And uh, I can certainly see why they thought we were just trying to protect the club. And there was an element of that, but it was not the whole, we were actually trying to protect everybody. This, yeah. this, this should have been fully investigated before it became public. And, and is the outcome of that review gonna be a high priority of the board? Obviously, when, when all the dust is settled on that, is that going to be a big priority, you know, post-December or whenever the findings come? Well, it's an absolute priority of the board, of course. And, you know, we're already working to expand um, the, the work in the cultural space at the club. Um, unfortunately, Brody's um, returned for family reasons to WA, but his, his role will be expanded. There are... Um, uh, I believe they're online, but there are learnings um, across the club, um, learning sessions um, already, and they were organised right from when this was identified, because that was something that we could do immediately. It's also important, I think, um, to realise that this is unlikely to be a Hawthorne only, a Collingwood only, an Adelaide only situation. I think what this is probably, and I hope, is going to do, and in fact, I understand is the wish of the First Nations players, that we look across the whole AFL and we look at, at, at what has not been done right. And, I mean, there are some things that you can't correct you can, with all of the best intentions, but you can do better. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to say that um, in, in a Collingwood manner. You, you, we really can do better. And that's what we see, really seek to do. If it is possible, um, if, if, if wrong has been done, we would do our best to write it. We do have to understand, though, and I do keep coming back to this, is that this has to be investigated in a fair manner before we find find exactly what we're dealing with so that we can actually work to do better in the future. One of the other things, um, going back to the Chris Langford letter, is, is the appropriate use of clubs' channels. Did you feel that that was an appropriate use of the club's channels in, in getting message out to, to supporters about the need to support the current board? Well, I think, I mean, it was a message asking for support, but I think it is appropriate that the board communicates um, with their members. Um, 
I, I, know, I do know that there was, it was debated um, fairly um, long whether, the, whether we should and could do this. Um, I'm not the legal person on the board, that's Peter, and, and it was, um, and, and Nick Holland from the club was um, involved in whether this was an appropriate thing to do. Um, I don't actually uh, see that there's an, a, a huge issue in the current board communicating with their members, in, especially since one of the criticisms that has been levelled at the board is that we don't communicate well enough with the members as to, uh, about what we're doing. And I think I do think that uh, at the in this election, it is very, very important that people understand what the actual issues are, because there is a lot of personal attack going on in the media. Um, fortunately, not particularly at me, but certainly at the board in general. Um, and I think that it's important for the members that are voting to to look at what are the actual issues and and policies, because beyond change for change's sake, we. I don't see a lot of policy change coming from those who seek to um, be elected in our place. There was a, there was significant um, policies last year which have been listened to and addressed. Um, but uh, to, to, to disrupt the club and, and potentially derail some very important projects, you have to have some very good policy changes that you're going to bring in. And I, I haven't heard any. I think the point uh, Chris made was that um, it's the members' database and not the board's database. Therefore, for, for something as fundamentally important as an election, then the challengers should be able to access, have access to the same database, given it is the database of members. But that's, you know, we don't need to, we're getting the weeds here with that one a bit. Um, tell us about the case. I mean, there's two elections. There's an election for president, election for yourself. What is the case for, why would Peter Mankin, why will Peter Nankin will be the next, uh, why should he be the next president of Hawthorne? Uh, well, Peter's um, a very, very um, accomplished board member. He's been on the board for eight years. He's across every project um, that we have done. And importantly, he's been integral with the, um, the Kennedy Community Centre. Um, he, was, he was actually there at the start, has worked on that all the time. And I think his involvement in, in that is um, very, very important for its, its continued uninterrupted progress. Um, his, his whole family is brown and gold. Um, he, his wife is extremely supportive. And uh, given the number of hours that the president is required at the club, it's very, very important to have the whole family behind him. Um, I've, I've never seen anybody who's able to manage a group of um, people with disparate opinions, as well as Peter Nankerville. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't have his skill at mediation. Um, and there's not one person, I mean, when there's a decision to be made, obviously not everybody walks away happy, but everyone walks away from a meeting um, with Peter Nankerville feeling like they've had a voice and they've had their opportunity to put their case. Um, I, I was actually, um, I know that the, um, the whole process um, has been debated long and hard. I was actually on the nominations committee. And uh, when we were looking for potential presidential candidates, I had spoken to Peter earlier thinking that he would be the ideal president. He was the head of the nominations committee. I mean, there's a lot of angst about that, I understand. Um, but the, 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 there's a lot being made of being the head of the nominations committee that, that is, um, there's a, there's a lot made of it and it's not really 
it that important. Your main duties as the head is that you actually get to organise the meetings and uh, follow up with minutes. You don't get any extra power, you don't get a casting vote, um, but you do have to be a board member. Peter, throughout that whole process, particularly when we were sort of realising as we interviewed the, the candidates that we were getting further and further away from finding anybody who was suitable, it's also important to remember that Andrew Gowes was on that committee and did not submit himself as a presidential candidate at that time. Um, but Peter continually refused to entertain any discussion about whether or not he would be a suitable president. He it was raised from time to time, um, but he absolutely said we're here, to do, we're here for a completely different purpose and it was only after the nominations committee had, had finished their work and disbanded and I know Andrew claims that he resigned from the committee. The committee had finished his work. It, it, it was over. He did not actually resign. And it was only after that that the board had to then regroup and see, we'll see where we were going to go for, to look for the new president. And it was only at that stage that Peter entertained any discussion. So I, I was, I, I, if I'm honest, I could say I was a little bit frustrated at the um, nominations committee because I really did want Peter to put himself forward, but I understand now why he was so adamant that he would not give any indication that we had to make our decision not, not in any way thinking that he was a candidate. You touched on at the start of our conversation, Anne-Marie, and also again there, that um, the importance of unity and having a unified board at the, at the moment and um, the potential disruption that may occur if the election swings one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to get uh, your thoughts on um, the fact that Andy Gowers has also called for unity as part of his, I guess, um, you know, uh, gunning for the, for the um, seat of president how um how do you think that works if if Gowers is elected as president and are you willing to work with anybody regardless of who's uh who is elected uh well that's presuming that i'm re-elected of course L let's go on that assumption <laughs> um look obviously i'm supporting peter nankerville so andrew Gowers, by definition is not my choice as president um i think andrew Andrew is a very nice man. I've had personal dealings with him. Um, and uh, I think that uh, he would, uh, I, I'm just concerned with Andrew that he is not in fact across as many of the areas that Peter would be. I, I would be, obviously if I accept the appointment as a board member, I will, I will work with anyone on the board in a collegiate manner. Um, and I would hope that I'm not right and that Andrew actually has um, abilities in areas that I'm not aware of. If, if, uh, and if that's not the case, then hopefully there are other members of the board that would be able to pick, pick that up. But um, in answer to your question, who, whoever is, ends up being the board after December the 13th, it's incumbent on all board members to work together in a collegiate and united manner. Because at the end of the day, we're all Hawthorne people. We're all wanting the best for the club. And if, if Personally, I would be able to do that. If anyone is unable to do that, then it's incumbent on them to resign their position because it, we, we cannot move forward if we're not united. Um, diversity has obviously been a big talking point through this election process. I mean, how do you feel about that being brought up by people like Jeff Kennett and Andy Gowers in this, I guess, a jostle between 
between men for president. Um, you know, it, obviously diversity is important because we want to reflect a club that is now split down the middle through gender, through membership, and then also the AFLW program. So, but, but, but what was your feelings when, when those things sort of came out in the media? Well, I think it's very, very important that we do have a diverse board. And um, that is one of the, the main advantages that I would see with the re-election of Katie and myself, and then with the um, election of Maria as, um, in, in that case, we would then have three women on the board um, ideally, we should have four in a, in a board of nine. Um, however, if um, others are, you only have to do the maths, but if others are successful, we could have as few as one female member on the board. And I don't think that reflects modern society. It doesn't reflect where the club's going. Um, I, I know you all read Katie's comments um, in, the, in the paper on, Sunday, on Saturday. I couldn't have put it better than she did. I mean, it would, it would, it would throw us back to the 1960s if we were to only have one woman on the board. Um, I think I, in terms of, were you specifically asking about president? Because um, I, I think at the moment, or if you just look at the three women involved, Katie, um, neither Katie nor myself um, put ourselves up for president. Um, I would hope that we will um, find a female in the next few years who is has got the, the skills and the time and the aspiration to be a female president. Um, I think that that, that it would be very, very good for our AFLW girls in particular to see um, women leading the club. We do need the best person leading the club. We need the best person on the board. And that's where I think that's actually really, really cool that we've got three women who are actually accomplished in their individual areas, um, law for Maria, finance for Katie and myself in medical, who actually warrant election to the board in our own right and not just because of our chromosomal makeup. So it, it's important that we have female there and, uh, and I think that we're actually really lucky that we've got three very accomplished females who can um, satisfy uh, the skill sets required. Absolutely. And I, I guess too, the, the question was, in a way, it seems like diversity has been weaponized a bit by some of the male candidates. And I think one of the comments from Andy Gowers in particular was about you um, and Katie sort of being thrown to the wolves and having to, to kind of re reapply for your position as board members versus, say, Richie Vandenberg just getting tenure again. I mean, mm -hmm. how did you feel about those comments? And then also having to, how did you feel having to reapply for to be a board candidate at, at the expense of someone like Richie just having that? Um, well, I found Andy's comments curiously insulting, really, that he considers that Katie and myself standing for re-election to portfolios that, that we've served very, very well and with good results, that he considers that being thrown to the wolves. I find, I find that a curious way to put it. Um, and um, what Andy doesn't seem to understand is this was not a decision foisted upon us. This was a strategic board decision. We actually felt that diversity was very, very important. And so we actually felt that by um, standing as two females, and then we were lucky enough that Maria um, accepted nomination as a third female, we felt that that was a very strong ticket. Um, and, and it's not like Richie's been given a free pass. I mean, Richie will stand next year. It was a constitutional issue that someone had to step aside um, and, and contest next year. Um, and we felt that this strategically was the, the best decision for the board. I mean, neither Katie nor I feel thrown to the wolves. And um, 
Katie's a very strong voice and I, I'm strong enough myself. And if we felt that, we would have been very quick to say that um, when the decision was being made, it was, it was discussed and agreed to. And in fact, I think Katie was the first one to put her hand up and said, I think that we should stand. So it's kind of Andy, but in a way, kind of a little bit patronising. These are very interesting times. Um, we're going to wrap it up there, Anne-Marie, but we give everybody their 30-second stump speech at the end, and we've really enjoyed this chat. It's been so illuminating and eye-opening for us, and it's been wonderful to hear from you. But give us your best 30-second stump speech as to why the members should uh, put you on their ballot over the next uh, couple of weeks. Oh, well, I've been Hawthorne all my life. My family's been Hawthorne all my life. Um, and I do think that uh, the unique skill set of medical and also a very, very rich tradition in Hawthorne um, history, the Hawthorne way, and then being able to look after the welfare of the past players is something that um, nobody else brings to this election. I, I think that uh, we need stability on the board. Um, I don't think that we need to change for change's sake. Um, and I, I would like the um, confidence of the members to continue to actually, um, to, to continue to lead the club as the board in a, in a Hawthorne way. Thanks so much for your time, Anne-Marie. That was a great point to end on. I actually just want to bring you back to something you said right at the start of the interview about Peter Hudson. Um, what's the family connection there? Are you, your close family, friends with him, and how did you end up on his knee? Oh, yeah. yeah, I left that bit out. No, that was actually at, um, well, I'll give you a quick little story is that, um, and it's an it's a issue of a little bit of shame in that when I was very young, I was actually an Essendon supporter because I didn't have a team. My family didn't have a team. We didn't know anything about football. So um, when everyone said, who do you barrack for? And the kid next door said, look, just say Essendon, say Essendon. So you've got something to say. But she was very wise. I was about three. She was four. And she said, there'll be a moment in your life and you will know who you have to barrack for. But until then, you'll shut the adults up by just saying Essendon. So I said, okay. So that was good. So I had that. And then we went to Peter Hudson was the, um, the uh, player for the National Bank. At, um, at the Royal Melbourne show. And we went to a window and they gave us that flags of the world, which you might remember. And, uh, and the man leaned out the window and he said, and you two take this around the other window, take that around inside, Peter Hudson will sign this for you. And we're like, who's Peter Hudson? Um, but it was obviously very, it was a very, very big opportunity. That was obvious. So mum said, well, come on, we'll go in and we'll find out. And, and that was when my brother and I were sat on a knee each and this man, the biggest man I'd ever seen, said, you two have to bury for Hawthorne. I thought, that's my moment. Well, well done, Peter, because he's, he, uh, he's inspired someone who's given wonderful service to the football club uh, for a very long time. And the author, proud, passionate and paid up, that is, uh, that is something that you can hang your hat on uh, and certainly a, such an important uh, moment in the history of the club. Anne-Marie's been really, as I said earlier, been terrific having you on um, and to hear your views on where the club is at and what the club needs. It's been really important. We've, we feel these podcasts have been an important service to the members. Some of the feedback we've been getting from people is that they want to hear from everybody before they cast their vote. So this sort of completes a set now and but you've made a really compelling case for your uh, why people should support you. So we thank you for your time, uh, giving up some of your work day to be part of us. And you're rocking the, the new club gear as well, I see. So uh, Oh, yes, it's great. 
the uh, the ISC gear. So mixed reviews on that so far from our audience. Some love it, some not so, quite sure, but we'll certainly get used to seeing it, uh, various people from the club, including all the trading photos will come out today for the first day back at training. We'll see the players in their gear, but uh, you're a good club person, Rocket McBeer. So thanks for everything. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we will talk to you again, hopefully down the track. Thank you to Darren and to Danny for being involved as well. That's the last ever AGM filed. Well, we do have uh, Richie Vandenberg coming up this week as well for a bit of a state of play. I think that'll be a feisty conversation as well, just quietly, I suspect. So thanks everyone for listening. Your support of Hawks Insiders. Uh, good content on the Substack, not just about the election, but about the football season, which in a way has kicked off today with the players back and, of course, the draft coming up next week. So lots to read and consume and to listen to. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you again next time on Hawks Insiders. Bye for now.